After the Time Out podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches talking basketball on the court, off the court, and anything in between. On today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast, we sit down with Coach Jeff Walls, head women's basketball coach at the University of Louisville. We talk to Coach Walls about preparing for the NCAA tournament, the differences in resources between men's and women's athletics, and developing your coaches and players. Enjoy the show. Coach, awesome to have you on. A uh, little inside tournament uh, experience here. Uh, we, re- we really appreciate it. Uh, we wanted to start off. Um, you obviously are number two seed in the tournament. You're excited. Your team's, you know, you got to go through quarantine, testing. Now you're, you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden, the conversation switches to something that's really out of your control with, with, with the inequality between the men's and the women's weight rooms. Um, I want to know, like, how did your staff adjust to that situation? Because that's probably something as much as you plan, it's not anticipated, right? You can't anticipate for that. Uh, you know, I saw your TRX workouts in the hallway um, and, you know, you, you put out some stuff crediting your staff for making those adjustments. What are the, some, some of the things you guys did to adjust to that situation? Well, we, we knew coming down that the first two rounds, we were not going to have okay. access to a full weight room. Um, and that was in our manual, which, you know, okay, fine. I, I, the problem came when obviously they started showing what the men had the opportunity right. to use uh so you know i just listened to lynn holzman uh, a little interview with ha holly Rowe. lynn is obviously the president for women's basketball within the, the vice president nca for women's basketball um uh, you know as she said there was just no communication or lack of com- communication between the men and the women of what are you going to be providing uh for your athletes you know, when we went to our practice facility and you see the pyramid of bar of dumbbells, I mean, just the fact that anyone even signed off that that was a good idea. And you had your sanitized yoga mats. That's what kind of blows me away is I understand it is awful. The fact that the men were getting full weight rooms, but the idea that someone even looked at the pyramid and said, Hey, this looks like a good idea. It is where I'm lost. You know, I would have, you would have been better off, honestly, not having anything there. Uh, But once the issue was was brought up and it was obviously broadcasted on social media, which it was a great thing because, you know, you put things up on social media, things change. And within a day, a day and a half, we had a full weight room. We were able to use it yesterday for our team. We'll be back today uh, for a lightweight workout before we play tomorrow. Um, And then my staff, because we knew we weren't going to initially have the weight room, we brought all the the TRX. So we were prepared to do some type of workout in the hallway, in in your room, just to get something in uh, during this five days from your initial arrival to when you play your first game. Um, okay. So then obviously that was a conversation uh, again, brings up another conversation where we're having this whole year about race, gender, like even politics, you know, how do you have those conversations with, with 
your players and, and your staff? Because um, those are obviously important topics that come up and, and people care about it and they're passionate about all those different topics that have come up throughout, it seems like just a short period of time. Well, we address everything head on here in our program. We don't shy away from any difficult con conversations. Um, you know, we were the center in Louisville of Brianna Taylor. So, it, you know, it's not like yeah. you didn't know what was going on. Right. Um, so we address that situation right away. And we had some difficult conversations. We actually had a Zoom call with the LMPD, our Louisville Met Metro Police Department. You know, they were kind enough to come on to a Zoom with our student athletes and they shared their insight our young women and our staff, we were able to ask them some, some tough questions and it was great dialogue. I can tell you, we did not have everybody at the beginning that really wanted to be on that call, uh, player wise and staff wise, but it's something we talked about and said, Hey, you've got to be able to have difficult con conversations to make any type of growth. And we all agreed to do it. And at the end of it, I can tell, tell you that it, it, everyone was, was glad that they that we did that because there was a lot of information that was shared a lot of knowledge that what, what was learned so when this came up we talk about it we talked to our student athletes we had a great discussion last night of how fortunate we are here at louisville 14 years ago when i was hired by tom jurich his passion for women's sports was as vibrant as I'd seen in any athletic director. He wanted our student athletes to have the same experience as any male counterpart would have. And that has continued on with our new athletic director, Vince Tyree. So we're fortunate, we charter. We, we get everything that the men get. And our players are never looking over their shoulder going, why is our men's team getting this and we're not? I'm not naive to think that that that's the same at all universities and within all athletic departments. So we're very appreciative what we what we do receive and the support that we have. But we do know change still needs to be made. OK, and then similarly to having those conversations, obviously, when you're in a tournament setting, there's more media present, there's more requirements for your players and your coaches. And I, I think this is an important thing for even like high, high school players, because there's more exposure now. What do you talk to your players about, you know, media training and, and, and how to talk to media and, and things like that? Because I think just with social media and, and everything, players at all levels now are, are in a, a kind of a bigger spotlight. Yeah. And it's more than just media training now. It's social right. media training. Right. It's, yeah, that's kind of what you know, I meant, just in general, yeah, the term it's, media. It's, it's a lot easier for someone to get in front of a camera, you know, the, these days because it's done so much and do an interview. You know, we can talk about how you handle yourself, think before you respond, all those things. Um, you know, we, we even go to, go to the extent of, you know, post-game. You know, when somebody's in there and they're talking about a teammate going, you know, she really didn't shoot the ball well. It was an off game and you reply with, yeah, she really didn't play very well. And then you say, but she did so many other things for us. And a lot of times the media will cut off that, but she did other. So it's like always start with the positives 
always start with the positive impact your teammates had and go from there. In social media now, one cl click of the button on send can change your life. And you're not bringing it back. I don't care how fast you try to erase it, delete it. Someone has screenshot it and it's everywhere. And we talk about that, you know, think before you hit send. And then when you're, you're prepared to hit send, think again. And then give yourself a good 10 or 15 seconds before you actually hit it to think for a third time. Because you can't bring it back. Uh, you know, we talk about it all the time with our student athletes. You know, before social media came about, you could get upset about something and, and just be furious about it. And then by the time you got home, to pick up the phone, to call somebody, you really realized, ah, maybe that's not a big deal. And you had time to cool down. Well, now it's instant. So when you're at the top of your frustration, you're sending something out that a lot of times people regret because of how they sent it. So we talk to our players about that. We wanna make sure that, that they're putting themselves in a in a position that really demonstrates their purpose, their belief, and they've had time to think about it. Yeah, or you could be like me and it takes 20 minutes to figure out how to send it anyways. And then Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> and then, um, so uh, what, well, what are the, some of the strategies then, you know, it's not a just, it's a little bit of a distraction, right? It takes the focus away from the game. How do you kind of get your players back on focused on the task they can after they kind of had to go through that little period? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really not been d difficult to get them to continue to stay right. focused. Uh, as we talked about, we had a plan because we didn't expect there to be a right. weight room. So we were prepared for that. Um, and then we talk about, you know, you, you have to keep fighting. You have to keep fighting for, for, for women's sports, not just women's basketball. Uh, you know, this is my 25th year of coaching women's college basketball. So I've been in it from, uh, you know, seeing where we bust. We used to get rental vans when you landed at the airport. You'd go and pick up three or four minivans, put the team in, put your bags in one, to where now we're flying charter, we're on charter buses, to where I've seen the improvements. Now we still have a lot to go, but our players, they, they have done such a great job all season of making sure we followed all of our, our protocols that we had in place at Louisville to get us to this point. So they're excited, they're focused, and there might be a little distraction here or there, but they understand and they, and they have a mission that we're trying to accomplish. So let's take it on the court now. So you're, uh, as Todd said, you guys are the two seed, but as the two seed, you get to first play the number two ranked scoring defense in the country. And then uh, if you are able to win, you follow that up with UCF or Northwestern and UCF is the number one scoring defense in the nation. That's a good two seed you got there, coach. Yeah. No, so, you know, we're excited to, uh, to, to, to be playing. I've got a ton, a ton of respect for Maris and, and Brian, what he's done up there. We've actually played them twice before and we split games. So we have, we know what's in, in, in front of us. 
we're going to have to do a really nice job offensively of executing and, and really making them work on defense because because everybody we're going to face here in the first two rounds, Northwestern or UCF and Marist, if we're fortunate enough to advance past Marist, they all defend extremely well. So you've got to value every possession that you get. And then we're going to have to try to create some uh, possessions ourselves to, selves to get some easy baskets. So how do you kind of go through, and, and obviously, you know, uh, you want to focus on the, the first team you play, but how do you go about through the tournament kind of being prepared for that next quick turnaround game? You know, are there any adjustments you make from round to round in that preparation? Well, with the tournament being compressed and not starting as early, you know, our selection show is mo Monday night and we're normally playing on Friday Friday, Sunday, Saturday, Monday, to where now they move it to Sunday, Tuesday, or Monday, Wednesday. We actually spent Tuesday and Wednesday going over UCF and Northwestern. In uh, no disrespect to Maris, but no nobody needs, at least I, I, I've never had five or six days to prepare for one game. So we were able to use those first two games, those first two days to prepare for what could be our second round opponent if we're fortunate enough to win. And then when we get down here, we actually spent one day completely on us, uh, which was Thursday. And then we started Friday up with a little bit uh, of Maris. Saturday was a little bit more. And actually yesterday on Saturday was our day that we actually were allowed in the, Al the Alamo dome to, sh dome to shoot. You only you, you get one day in the facility where you're going to play your first game. So we spent that day more so shooting, just getting lots of shots up, getting the kids adjusted to the depth perception, to the rims, to, to the court. Um, and then today we'll be all Marist the day before the game. And then obviously tomorrow is game day. But, you know, the change now is you, you are not given a shoot around time. So normally on a day of a game, we'll go for an hour, hour and 15 the morning before to review, get shots up, and then that night we play. But because of court availability, no teams are getting court access day of game except for 60 minutes, hopefully, before 10. So you just went through your practices a little bit, but I kind of want to go like a progression. Um, like, what does your practice look like beginning, middle, and now obviously tournament time and maybe tournament time in a, let's just use a more, a, a normal year, a, a regular year. How do you, you know, tier it? Do you scale back? Do you, you're adding things here, taking out things there? Yeah, it's, we, we'll, we'll start off, you know, the beginning of our year, we're going for two and a half, three hours. Now, as we progress through, through the season, we're an hour and a half probably of actual practice time max. Now we might be out there for two hours because you do your pre pre stretch and then post stretching and then you know kids like to get some free throws up, some free shooting. But actual instruction, we're hour and a half max. Uh, at this point in time, we will start off because we get nine, nine, 90 minutes since we've been down here. You get ninety minutes of, of court time. So our first 25 to, to, to 30 minutes is shooting, uh, skill work, just ball handling. You know, the fundamentals that people 
when they come to our practice, they're like, oh, so you still work on bounce pass? You still work on cross, uh, crossover, left-handed layups, right-handed layups? We continue to do all of those things. And then the middle of our practice normally is on our opponent. We'll work on our defensive scheme, what we're trying to do, who their strength, who their strengths are, what their their weaknesses where we think we can attack them are. Uh, and then the last third of practice is strictly us. We are working on execution. We'll go over end of game scenarios, baseline out of bounds, sideline out of bounds you know, down three with six seconds left, ball on the baseline, what are we looking to run? Ball on the sideline. So we do a lot of scenario situations. So when we get into that situation, it's nothing new. Our kids know what we're looking for, know what we're going to run and execute. Okay, so let's go, let's go back. Let's go back in time here. You know, you obviously have developed that over time. What was like a hard, maybe a hard lesson you learned early in your career as far as practice structure or format? Because I think everybody coach goes through that, right? A, a balance of, well, that didn't, that didn't work or that wasn't the right thing and you kind of get better as you go. Yeah, you know, we do things a little bit different here than a lot of, a lot of schools. Uh, I've never been one to write out an hour-long practice plan. I do a lot of coaching off the field. We will meet as a staff before practice and I'll be like, hey, here are the five things that I'm looking to get done. And then my staff does a great job. I normally give them the first 35 to 40 minutes of practice and let them, hey, you want to work on guard post split? You want to work on shell drill? I let them do what they want to do. Uh, and we talk about it. And then the rest of practice is I like to get up and down the floor. So we're going to do a lot of up and down, uh, three-minute scrimmage, four minutes, difference, just playing because – I've seen a lot of teams that can that are great at drills. You do that shell drill, you sit there and do, you know, ball you, man, they're, they're fantastic. But as soon as you go five, five on five, it's all thrown out the window. So I like to, to get up and down. And then as it's going, we might be working on offense for four or five minutes, and then I'll tell one of my assistants, hey, I want a rebounding drill. So it, it, when this clock ends, it's you. And then it, it makes them stay involved in practice. It makes them have to think on the fly, which I think is important. You can write everything down, and, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately, in a game, it's not all scripted. You've got to be able to react and change on the fly. So we try to make our practices as close to games as we can. Um, all right, so I guess we're talking – practice here uh you have an elite player right dana evans naismith player of the year finalist uh one you know what does she mean for your program and then when you have such an elite player um and you obviously talked about fundamentals and all that and you do that every day but what tools do you use to help them improve throughout the season and year to year well we've been very fortunate to have some uh, some special players through throughout my 14 years here we inherited angel mccotry who's a a two or three time All American, a two time Olympic gold, gold medalist. Right. Uh, and then we, you know, you get somebody like a Shoney Schimmel that follows yep. that, Maisha Hines Allen, yep. Asia Durr. So we, we have very talented players. It, it's not like we, we just got one great one. So we really don't 
just change because of one player. Right. Um, Dana has really embraced the process of what college basketball is about. And a lot of players don't do that anymore. She came in averaging 34, 35 points a game out of high school, came in as a freshman, and I needed her to be more of a defensive player for it, be an impact at the defensive end. She averaged five or six points a game her, her freshman year because we had Asia Durr. We had Maisha Hines-Allen. We had Sam Furin. I She didn't need to come in and score 20. And she embraced that. Uh, then her sophomore year with some graduation, she wanted to work her way into a starting, starting position. She did. Uh, but for us, after four, four or five games of her starting, I realized our team is better if, she'll, if she would embrace coming off the bench because she can change the tempo of a game uh, with her quickness and her aggression on defense and offense. And it took a little bit of time to, to, to get her to understand what I was trying to do. But we sat down and we talked, you know, hey, do you want to be another starter in the ACC or do you want to try to be sixth player of the year? And she was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sixth player of the year. Not every player will embrace that because, you know, everybody loves to start. They want that handshake. They love that handshake line. They come up with their new handshake and all that craziness when their name's announced. But Dana said, hey, I'll do what's best for our team. And she helps us get to a final four. Now, her junior year, okay, I need more from you now. We're going to need some more scoring because we graduate Asia. We graduate Maisha Sam, and she becomes ACC Player of the Year, which has never been done, men or women, where you a player goes from Sixth Player of the Year to ACC play, Player of the Year. And now her senior year, she's ACC play, Player of the Year again, back to back. And she's just embraced it from start to finish. And we tried to explain this to all recruits, all players. Everybody's journey is different. You know, but unfortunately, social media, you know, I, I tell them, everybody thinks college is easy. You come in here, oh, I'm going to just start here and just continue to go straight up. It's, it's not how it works, guys. And everybody, you know, I want to start. I, I want to start, but they also want to be on a good team. So I laugh with, with people and I'm like, so everybody else at your school all the other positions are really good, but the one you play, those players, as I say, suck. You know, <laughs> so you're going to come in and start. But I go, it doesn't work that way, guys. You got to earn it. And in some situations, kids earn it. Haley Van Lith, Olivia Co Cochran, for us right now, are two freshmen that start and have had great success. But that doesn't happen all the time, and you've got to be able to embrace it and and just fight through your journey and. When you've got two feet in, no matter what program you're in, if you've got two feet in and you're committed, you've got peaks and valleys. And when you hit and when you start going down into a valley, instead of looking over your shoulder going, man, where else can I go? I, I could go someplace else and play. You, you come into the coach's office, you sit down with, with the coach and go, hey, what, what, what can I do to get better? What, what do you want, want me to do? And as coaches, I'll sit down with my kids. We talk about it all the time. Here's what I need you to do if you want to play. And then go out and do it. And those are the ones that all of a sudden you start to see them have a great career because they've handled adversity and gotten stronger from it.
So Dana has just embraced all of that. And now we're at the culmination of, of her career here at Louisville. And it, it's been an amazing career for her. She's been an amazing teammate. And now we're looking to hopefully make a deep run. I, I think that is so important, just the, their willingness to embrace the, the truth and, and build off of that. I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, so let's go in. We talked a lot, you know, obviously about the tournament and your players. Let's talk about your coaching staff for, for a second. So, you know, your assistant coach, Norman, was just obviously named an assistant coach of the year by the WCA, the WBCA. Um, so kind of take us through what is your structure for your duties for your assistants? Do you have like an offensive or defensive coordinator role like some coaches do? Do you have specific assigned skills for each assistant? Kind of take us through that. Well, first off, Steph has been with me for all 14 years. So, you know, I've been very fortunate to have someone of her knowledge and, and, and her expertise and, and, and work ethic to, to be a part of this. Uh, you know, we've also been very fortunate here that we, I've never had an assistant coach move on to be an assistant coach someplace else. You know, they stay here, we, they learn, we get better, we share ideas until that time comes for when they feel they're ready for a head coaching job. So every assistant that's ever moved on here, they've always moved on to be a head coach, which I think is what has made our program so special is we don't have a large turnover in assistance. You know, so Steph's been with me for all 14. Sam Purcell's going on year eight, I believe, or year nine. And then JP, this is her, her, her second year. She replaced Samantha Williams, who got the head coaching job at Eastern Kentucky. So we don't have a offense, defense, anything like that. Now, we do have some skill, skill position work. You know, Coach Norman does a great job with our post players. Uh, Sam and JP do a great, great work with our guards, and I'll flip back and forth. So we, we do do that in, in those areas. But besides that, everyone's involved. I want, I, I, I was fortunate to work for Paul, Paul Sandiford for six years and then Brent, Brenda Freeze for uh, five or six years also. And both of those coaches allowed their assistants to be a part of all of it. You know, I want our staff, I want my staff to know what budgeting is, you know, dealing with personnel issues that might arise. I don't want them to not experience everything that, that you're going to need to deal with if you want to be a head coach. So we don't per se have just this is your area. That's my area. We all collaborate together and it's worked for us. Okay, so obviously we're the after the timeout. So we like to talk about timeout situations. You just spoke about your assistance. Um, so during a timeout, you and your staff, talk about that dynamic. Uh, are your assistants giving you a key stat? Or are they maybe talking about some aspect of the game that they see? How does that dynamic work during your timeouts? Well, we're, we're talking a lot throughout the game during live play. So when a timeout hits, you know, if it's to the point where a team's on a 6-0 run, an 8-0 run, we'll talk as a staff before the game starts and I'll tell them and, and we'll discuss it. I'll be like, okay, in today's game, if, if they go on a 6-0 run, I need to know because we're, call, we're calling a timeout. And it could, it, it could be a different game where it could be an 8-0 run. 
depending on the tempo of the game. Uh, so we talk about those, about those things. And my staff, I, I'm, I'm pretty open for the fact that if we're coming down the floor and, and you know, we're, and we, we have the ball, if there's something that they believe is going to work, I got no problem if they call it. If they're like, coach, this play, that play. And then we'll go and execute it. I mean, we'll sit there and try to because they're all invested. They're invested in what's going on. Instead of just being a defensive coach or an offensive coach, they're invested in the entire game. So we'll talk as it goes. Hey, I think we should switch the zone. Let's try this. And then at the timeout, normally we've already had those discussions. And then it gives me the opportunity to go in there and talk and talk to the kids and try to explain what we want to do and how we're going to do it. And if they've got some, something to say, I've got no problem with my assistant pop, pops and head in or they'll, they'll, they'll be behind me and then they'll say something to, to our team as well. So let's finish up. We always finish up with a, a funner top five uh, for everybody we have on. And uh, so I was looking through and obviously you, you were on Brenda Freeze's staff at Maryland when they won the national championship. But I also did some research and it, it, early on, I think when you were in college, you might have coached some middle school and some high school ball. So my first job. Yes, sir. So kind of take us through. What were what are five things before you were hired at the head coach of Louisville? What were five things that you might have taken maybe from Coach Freeze in some college jobs, but even down to those high school and middle school jobs early on? What were five things you took? Well, I, I think my first job, it, it, it was seventh, seventh grade girls. There it and, is. And, you know, I, I played a few years of college basketball, D2 ball, before I retired. I like to say I retired. Uh, the, uh, the good Lord did not bless me with very quick feet. Uh, so when they eliminated the old cuff your hand, hand check, put it on the hip, my neck was getting whiplash as everyone was driving by me. So I went into my coach's office and uh, very nicely was like, hey, I think you're wasting my time and I'm wasting your money. And unfortunately, guys, he agreed with me. So, uh, <laughs> so as soon as I went back, you know, I called my parents and I was like, hey, I've, I've given up my scholarship. And uh, my dad's first response was, okay, how do you plan to pay for college? So seventh grade girls job was, was available. You know, I applied for it and I got it. The one thing I learned, which was a valuable lesson for me, was never assume players know anything. Teach them. You know, we'd shoot free throws after practice. You would stand underneath the basket when I shot. I'd stand underneath, get the rebound when you shot. First game we play, you got fouled, and where do you think I stood? Right under the basket. And the parents are looking, are going, <laughs> I never taught them how to line up for a free throw. Well, I, I just assumed that they knew it. So the first thing is ne never assume, never assume. And it doesn't mean you're talking down. It's just, you're educating. You want to make sure they know, they know the game. Uh, the second thing that, that I've learned, and I learned this from Paul, Paul Sanderford, who was the first coach that I worked with is players have to know you care about them. If they truly know you care about them off the court, you can coach them as hard as you want. You can challenge them to do things they never thought they could do and get them to a point where they're extremely uncomfortable uh, of pushing through that wall, as we like to say. But you can never do that if they truly don't know you care about them. 
And I, I watched I watched Paul Sandiford do that for six years. And the fact of if, if a player calls boy and need and needs something, it's not, I'll get back with you in a half hour. We take care of it then. We make sure we're an extension of their families. Uh, so I, I, I learned that from Paul and from, from Brenda for my five years with her, six years with Brenda is she, she, she was great at recruiting. She really put a lot of time and effort into recruiting. And at the same time, she'd miss practices. So she had faith that the assistants were able to run a practice and be productive even while she's not there. So showing that confidence that you have it in your staff is really, really important. Uh, and then, you know, for doing this for, for, for 25 years, I've also realized, and I, I think for any young coach, I would tell them that it, it's got to be a passion. It, it, it's got to be a passion. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to say that I, I know what it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. There's been a lot of sacrifices that, that, that have been made. But when I go to work each day, it doesn't feel like work. Um, you know, I've got a lot, a lot of friends that have great jobs and do extremely well that they joke with me and say the best part of their week is Friday at five. Hmm. And the worst part is Sunday at nine when they're going to bed to start the work week over. Um, and then my last one is never do something for the paycheck. Now I'm very blessed to, to, to do very, very well, but I started 25 years ago as a grad assistant and then got promoted to what they called back in those days, restricted earnings, where I was getting $12,000 a year to be a full-time assistant coach. And I was happy as could be. I couldn't believe I was getting to wear shorts to work. Like, are you kidding me? This, this is the best thing ever. Uh, that was my first two years at Western Kentucky. I go to Nebraska. I spend four years there and then restricted earnings goes out the window. And my first year, I think I was making $32,000 after restricted earnings was completed as a full time. And I always tell anybody, you have to invest in yourself. And what I mean by that is at Nebraska, Paul Sandiford, I'd always meet with coach and he'd be at the end of the year, what's your goals? And my goal was I wanted to be a head coach. And after the third year there, he said, okay, I think you're going to need to work for, for someone else to give you another sample of, of their style of how they coach. And then a reference it will give you another reference after year four at Nebraska, Brenda freeze called when she was at Minnesota, we talked about a job. She offered me the job. I took the job. After about five months, we were having a discussion in the office and she was like, I never even asked you what you made at, at Nebraska. You know, salary wise, you just, you said you'd take the job. And I told her it didn't matter. I, I took a pay cut, you know, because I was told by Paul Sandifer, who I respected, you have to invest in yourself. So I, I took a salary cut down, but made a move up in my career and it's paid off. So I, I tell people when I have jobs open and I'm hiring for an assistant, if anyone ever asks me what the job pays, I basically cross them off the list. 
because that's not if that's if that's one of the first questions you ask within the first 10 or 15 minutes of a job interview you're telling me what's most important to you mm -hmm. now i'm not naive if i'm you know coming to call you about a job i'm not going to sit there and lowball you and be like hey i know you've got a family or even if you don't and say hey i'm going to offer you 20,000 less than what you're currently making but i want people that have a passion for what we do. So those would be five things uh, for me that I think I've learned through my, my 25 years of coaching. Well, coach, we, we know you got to run to your media availability at 915, but we really appreciate you being on. This was a phenomenal episode. Todd and I were so thankful that you got back to us and we're, or were willing to be on and, and chat the game with us. And we wish you nothing but the best of luck uh, in the tournament this year. I sure appreciate it. I appreciate the time. It, it's always nice to, to be able to share. And, uh, you know, the, the one the one thing I, I really believe in is there's no better time to do it than when you're in the moment. So being down here in my hotel room and a little bit of our quarantine that we are in, I, I think it's good. It's good to share. So I appreciate the uh, 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 opportunity. And if uh, you ever need another uh, person to be on, please call me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast and Apple Podcast by searching after the timeout. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and everything in between.